Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord, our God, thank you for these people. Thank you for your people. Thank you for our lives together. I pray peace upon all of them. I pray peace upon all of us for today and forever. Be with us, open our hearts and our minds, and allow us to hear you and hear the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So after giving four sermons, then taking a break for four months to recover from four sermons, I come back to the same passage, the same scene that one of my four sermons were on, rejected at Nazareth. So previously we called it rejected at home. So Janet, Tanya, and I figured we would spice things up a bit, and so we're calling it unwelcomed at home. (laughs) I found out about this, that I'll be doing this sermon this week rather late. (laughs) So I didn't have much time to prepare for it. So as I'm looking at this passage, I started to consider it, and I, I, I noticed that I need to expand a little bit, expand the boundaries a little bit, push the boundaries out. And so I start thinking about it. I'm I'm, I'm having, you know, going through the sermon in my head. I'm putting it together. I started writing it down. Then I figured, okay, I'm pushing these boundaries. I'm going into the territory Dick and Diane had covered last week. So kind of in a panic, I call uh, or contact Tanya. Can I have her sermon so I don't say everything she said? So I get the sermon. I'm listening to it, point after point, I'm saying everything that she's saying. (laughs) So instead of giving myself a full panic attack, I figured if I'm following Deacon Diane, I'm not too far off. I'm doing pretty well. So today, I will be repeating my last sermon plus her sermon last week. (laughs) Or maybe not. We'll adjust things a bit. Now, when you think about Jesus, what do you normally consider? What do you normally think about? The word of God. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He is God. He is the one who sends the promised Holy Spirit. So often we speak about the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. Now, these are all true and right and good ways of thinking about him. But if you want to keep to the ways the Gospels present him, if we want to keep the ways that they give the full picture of him, we must also see him as the Christ of the Spirit. The Christ of the Spirit. Jesus, the man of the Spirit. The church, in order to secure that aspect of his nature, God, sometimes turns up the volume so loud on that one particular aspect that it drowns out two things. One, his full humanity and the full work of the Holy Spirit. 
So what we need to do is we need to adjust these volumes a bit. And when you do that, when you make the volumes all work right or close to right, we begin to notice, we begin to see this intimate dance, as the Greek fathers would call it. This intimate dance between Jesus and the Spirit. A dance that we are invited into to begin to learn and eventually master as we follow the Master himself. That is the program of the church. This is the model that reveals how the church should function in order to actually be the church and carry out its mission and ministry in the world. In fact, there is no church, let alone a ministry, but for these two arms of the Father, the Word and the Spirit, who embrace us and lead us into this dance of love, this eternal dance of love. What Luke is concerned, arguably more to highlight, arguably more than anything else, more than what Jesus taught, more than what his healing ministry, but obviously related to both, is this action this anointing of the Spirit on the Messiah. In fact, Luke doesn't tell us much about what Jesus taught or what he did when he begins his ministry. But he's certain to tell us, he wants to make sure he tells us that he begins his ministry being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has descended upon him in bodily form in his baptism. In chapter 4, the Spirit has led him to the wilderness while he will be tempted. And again, we are told he was full of the Spirit. It is through the Spirit that he overcomes the devil. The text in Nazareth, which he reads from the prophet Isaiah, begin with the words, the Spirit is upon me. So of all the Gospels, it's the Gospel of Luke that most stresses the power of the Spirit working in Jesus. Now, it's the same Luke who will go on in his second volume, his second work in the book of Acts, and he records the story of Pentecost, where the Spirit falls upon the church mightily, with great power. This is the basis of everything else that Luke has to say about what Jesus taught and his healing ministry. So we need to pay real close attention to that. Now we left off last week with Deacon Diane's wonderful, insightful sermon on a powerfully positive note, on the good news of the kingdom of God being inaugurated and us being invited, this invitation of embracing the Lord's favor. Question. Can you dictate where the work of the Spirit and the Word might go? Can we set boundaries as to whom this year of the Lord's favor, this good news, 
to the captives should reach? Another question. Is the good news always good news? It certainly wasn't for Satan. Satan had a horrible wilderness experience. It was tragic. <laughs> but what you want to see in what, what takes place in the wilderness is Satan is trying to draw in Jesus into the parameters, into the boundaries that he sets out. He could be happy if Jesus agrees to remain in those boundaries. But clearly, the Word and the Spirit, Jesus and the Spirit, had a very different idea of how things are going to work out in the kingdom of God. But you want to keep these questions in mind as we enter once more Nazareth, where I need to change my page before I completely lose the track of my thoughts. We enter once more Nazareth. We enter again the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus begins... I am awfully sorry. I am losing my mind here. Okay. I've lost some of my notes. Can I take a break? <laughs> wow. Did somebody play around with my notes? I, I am completely off here. Okay. Back to our program. So you want to keep these questions in mind as we begin to enter the synagogue in Nazareth. But just as Deacon Diane said, there is an electric charged atmosphere of expectation as Jesus reads the words of the prophet Isaiah and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What you want to imagine, and it's often difficult to imagine because it's difficult to put ourselves in anybody else's shoes, let alone the sandals of some people 2,000 years ago. But what you want to imagine <clears throat> is this centuries of expectation. Centuries of expectation. Not as individuals, not personal for personal reasons but the collective hope of Israel that God would act in history and rescue and liberate Israel to bring about the long-awaited kingdom of God on earth. The release from captivity, which Israel at the time still felt that they were under since they were under Roman occupation. So here Jesus says, in your hearing... All of this has been fulfilled today. This is a big deal. This is wonderful news. So it would obviously make sense why their initial reaction is one of marvel. They, they are amazed and they speak well of him. The hometown boy has made it big. He is a prophet. So they are anticipating being first in line in receiving this favor from the Lord, the favor of the Lord. Great news. So to capture this sentiment, Jesus says, this is what Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. 
Namely, we, we've been hearing what you've been up to out there in Capernaum and everywhere else. Why don't you be a good prophet and do at home what we've been hearing that you've been doing everywhere else? After all, this is the right thing to do. Heal yourself first, namely us, your hometown people. Heal us first. We should be the first to receive the good stuff that God is doing in and through you. So Jesus, perceiving, as he often does, what lurks beneath this initial excitement, the barrier that will become the reason for their rejection of him, says, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, this is quite provoking, if you can understand what he's getting at. He is looking back something like 800 years, where Israel had placed itself in a, quite a mess before God by inviting in these foreign gods. And the gatekeepers, the kings, were the reason, were the cause that these foreign gods had invaded, think of it that way, Israel. During the time of Elijah, there was a particularly terrible king, Ahab. And he had married a Phoenician princess, Jezebel. So Jezebel turns out to be quite the champion for a god, the, uh, Baal. And um, Ahab, being the good husband as he was, he began to build places of worship for Baal all over Israel. So in chapter 17 of the first book of Kings, Elijah is introduced abruptly. He's an interruption to the system of the kings that they have set up. And he goes to Ahab and says, God is not too happy with you. And because of that, he's going to cause a drought for three and a half years. Now, Ahab, clearly not being too happy with that news, forces Elijah to flee Israel, where Elijah enters the wilderness. Sounds familiar? And God provides for Elijah in strangest ways. Now, one of these strange ways that God provides for Elijah is, he tells him, I've prepared for you some provision in Phoenicia, out of all places, in Zarephath, in, in Sidon. Now, Phoenicia is right north of Israel. It's modern-day Lebanon. It was a hub for Baal worship. Okay? So he is telling Elijah, go up to enemy territory. Go up to enemy territory where one of them I have provided for the widow to bless you, to provide for you. So Elijah listens and goes. The widow provides for Elijah, and in turn, God, through Elijah, blesses this Phoenician woman, this widow. Her 
oil and bread don't run out, and eventually her son is raised from the dead. Now, clearly there's a lot of connecting points and overlap between that story and what takes place with Jesus. But what I want you to focus on, what I want you to take away in terms of what is he getting at here is this. You are not the ones who will establish the boundaries and restrictions on any ground. Ethnic, religious, social, economic, gender, on any ground where the word and spirit will find it well to enter and bless, to bring about the Lord's favor. Well, this doesn't sit well with his hometown people at Nazareth. It's outside of their assumptions. And they are trapped in their restrictions and boundaries that clearly Jesus is violating. So they become irate. They become violent. They, they grab him. They become wrathful. They want to kill him. So on a dime, the good news turns out to be not so good news in Nazareth. Now, to understand this a little bit better, I suppose, to get our minds around it a little bit better, you could think about it in our context. Now, I imagine myself first in line in terms of getting blessed the favor of God. After all, I'm Armenian. <laughs> Secondly, to enhance that factor already, I'm American. Talk about a perfect marriage of assuming that I should be first in receiving God's favor. <laughs> Not only I have adopted the, uh, the story of the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock as my own, I have Noah and his ark landing on Mount Ararat, my backyard. So combining these two identities together, I would say I have a rather thick Christian claim on God's favor. Now imagine God saying, okay, I understand how you feel. <laughs> I can see how you could come up with this, uh, that you're Armenian-American, you could assume this. But I'm going to go to the Turks. Or, and I really don't want to be the only one missing out on God's blessing and favor, supposing instead of Americans, the word and spirit bless Saudi Arabia, bin Laden's family, family of someone of the mullahs in Iran, Syria, Iraq. How does that sit with you? Hidden within this scenario, and very much related to it, is this awful, this offensive, terrible idea Jesus had with this commandment, where he says, if you want to be the sons of the Most High, this is what you have to do. Love your enemy, pray and do good to those who hate you. I mean, if it wasn't hard enough to love your neighbor, 
He's commanding his people to love your enemy and to do good for them. So it's understandable that at this point you might want to join in with Nazareth and throw your hands up and say, okay, you know, I don't think so. This is just way too much. I'm out. I mean, I could understand if Jesus would say something like this. Okay, you should be favored first. You deserve it. You should be blessed first. So this is what I'll do. I'll bless you. I'll favor you first. Then we'll work on those other people over there someplace. And eventually we'll make them be like you. But it turns out that God is not really interested in making anyone like us. God is interested in making people like himself. In fact, that itself is the good news. Setting the captives free, the good news to the poor, the year of the Lord's favor are, are but an introduction to this one reality. That salvation, among other things, could be understood as God making you like himself, like his son. And it's always dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no way of embracing this wide and all-encompassing, boundary-shattering mission of God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit outside of imitating Jesus in his dependence on the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit. It is only then that we are securely aligned with the mission of God in this world and are not captive to our imagined boundaries. Now, there are plenty of good things in the things that identify us, things that we're proud of. My Armenian-American story, your story, the political positions we might take, our ethnic history, whatever. But all of these are always in danger of growing so thick, the walls becoming so thick that they begin to suffocate the word and the spirit. And so we begin to assume and restrict. And when this happens, we're always in danger of not seeing the full effects of God's favor. In order to counter that, while holding on to some of the important distinctions that make us who we are, is always the command to love your enemy, to love the other. And in order to do that, we must grow into a single-minded loyalty to God. Therefore, we're back where we began, where Jesus sets out the program. Himself exemplifying and being the head of the mission of God. We must be full of the Holy Spirit. We must enter the dance. We have just begun a new year, and we should and we must anticipate blessing from God 
He has already blessed us immensely by bringing us together, by allowing us to partake in so many ways in the life of his own life. But as we look forward to this year, not as individuals, but as a church, as St. David's, we have to ask ourselves, where are we within this mission of God? The question we have to ask is, will we restrict, will we set boundaries on the work of, the, of God, or will we be led by the Holy Spirit wherever the Spirit might lead? I hope and I desire this year to be a wonderfully blessed year in all sorts of ways, including our ministry. But before we get there, and as, as we approach the season of Lent, let us seek the greatest favor and blessing of the Lord. Let us ask God to fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may follow the word, so that we may become like the Son, so we may love as he loved and shatter everything else that stands in the way of experiencing God's blessing and favor upon us. Will we join the dance? I think we should. There's no dance better than that. I'll leave you with those thoughts. Amen.